Energy. We walked around for 35 minutes just in the parking lot looking for this car. The passion. UVM schedules the way they do to get as high a seed as possible in the NCAA tournament and to get as much tournament prep as they can because they're not going to get it from their league. The opinions on all your favorite teams. The organization should be taking care of Matt rather than Matt taking care of the organization. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show here on a Wednesday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You ever have, of course you have, you ever have just one of those days in the office? This is one of those days. During the after, during the midday news service, the power went out randomly. Literally, the power went out here for about three seconds. But that three-second power outage screwed everything up. The microphone was screwed up. The board was screwed up. I couldn't hear myself talk. So we spent all day, not me really, but people in the building spent all day fixing that. Now, I'm going to try to turn on the video stream for this show, and that computer doesn't want to work properly. So now I'm trying to press buttons with one hand and talk to you with the other. It's just been one of those days. All of this from a little snowstorm. Maybe two inches here in Waterbury. All of, all of this hell brought to you by this little bit of fun weather. I mean, so it's just been one of those days. We do have a ton to get to though. We are on until seven o'clock. Jazz with George Thomas will come up at that point at seven and then I on the world with John Batchelor. When I, when I can get the video stream up, I will. Tom Karen of Nesson is going to be with us here in about 15 minutes, clear up some stuff on the Red Sox and Bruins, a little bit Freddie Coleman, who I spoke to earlier today. Thoughts on UVM basketball, who had a tough loss last night against USC. You can get in on the Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. You are locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville and well, eventually you'll be able to watch us on Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and on my Twitter account as well. I'll tell you when that's up and running. I think I'll be able to get it here, uh, hopefully right around the time when TC comes on. That's the goal. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber. Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. I want to talk to TC here in 15 minutes or so about the Red Sox, but before we do that, I want to come clean with you. I want to come clean with my audience. I don't believe that over the last few days, I have done a really good job talking about the Red Sox and the offseason. I, I just don't I don't feel like I've done a good job. The Red Sox haven't been our biggest story, right? We've done a lot of UVM basketball. We've done a lot of Patriots stuff. Had some great guests, as always, over the last few days. And I feel like my deliverance of Red Sox coverage has under-delivered. I felt like I've kind of rushed it. I felt like it hasn't been as thoughtful as I would like it to be or as you need it to be as a listener. So I want to give the Red Sox the next 10 minutes or so before TC. I want to get, I want to lay it all out there in the way I should have done the last few days, if you'll allow me to do that. Here's kind of where we're at in the offseason right now. Yesterday was the deadline for all major league teams to 
protect minor league players from the upcoming Rule 5 draft. And that's a little bit in the weeds and a little bit of nerdy baseball. But basically, the Red Sox added a few minor leaguers to their 40-man roster, so now they are protected, right? They can't be poached by other teams in the Rule 5 draft, draft, uh, draft, which is next month. So that's number one. Yesterday was also the deadline for players to accept or reject qualifying offers, right? That was the one-year deal, $19-plus million. The Red Sox offered those deals to both Xander Bogarts and Nathan Avaldi, and both rejected them. As a result, both players are now free agents, and if they sign somewhere else, the Red Sox get draft pick compensation for them. Probably not a big deal for Bogarts, right? A team will sign Xander Bogarts and gladly give up a draft pick. Nathan Avaldi, it could be a hindrance to his free agency, knowing that, well, if we have to give up a draft pick that's high, do we really want to do that for Avaldi? So, that could kind of force Evaldi back to the Red Sox if teams don't want to give up that draft pick. We also know the Red Sox have offered Nathan Evaldi a multi-year contract. That is where we are at right now with kind of the logistics of the Red Sox offseason. It is free agency is fully open. Trade season is fully open. We saw a trade today between the Mariners and Blue Jays. We saw a guy sign yesterday. So things are happening on the hot stove, and the Red Sox can get involved whenever they want to, hopefully sooner. That is kind of where we're at. As for where I am at with the Red Sox, I am frustrated. In fact, I'm very frustrated. And I'm frustrated because Chaim Bloom and ownership have their feet in both camps. And I said a few years ago, it's really, really hard to have your feet in both camps. And in 2021, by getting to the ALCS, I thought maybe the Red Sox had navigated that, and they had figured out a way to have your feet in both camps. It turns out 2021 was a bit of fool's gold. You cannot be long-term. You cannot have long-term success by kind of being half in and half out. It remains nearly impossible to do that, period, and it remains impossible to do it for the long term. And this is where the Red Sox are still to this day. They are half in and half out. They are very much caught in the in-between. I like Chaim Bloom. You know that. But Chaim Bloom and the Red Sox, they need to make a choice. Other teams are already making moves. Again, your division rivals are making moves. The Blue Jays got bullpen help today. The Yankees re-signed Anthony Rizzo. Chaim Bloom, you're doing nothing. Chaim Bloom and the Red Sox, and this is not all on him, this is on ownership as well and upper management. The Red Sox need to make a choice. Are you playing the long game, or are you going for the quick fix? And if you truly want to straddle the line between the two, you have to do a far better job than what you've been doing. Because I just told you it's really, really hard. If you're going to try to do it, you got to do it better than what you've been doing thus far. Because let's examine those choices. I believe, and I maintain this at my core, the best way to build a sustainable winner, and I mean every year winner in Major League Baseball, and that's Chaim Bloom's word, right, sustainable. The best way to do that is to back off at the Major League level and commit fully fully to your minor league resources. The Astros did it. They are the shining example. But when you do that, 
there is a huge cost. There is a huge cost. Okay, the Yankee or the uh, Astros tanked for several years in order to build what they have now, and they have now mastered it. But it was several years of pain, unwatchable baseball, and 100 lost seasons. Several years. My Mariners sold off everything after 2018. Lost 100 games in 2019, under 500 in the COVID 2020 year, missed the playoffs in 2021, in the playoffs relevant and set up pretty well now. It was a three-year step back. Toronto took a three-year step back and did this. The White Sox took a three-year, four-year step back. The Padres were awful for a decade. A lot of the teams you see now that are good, a lot of them took the drastic step of selling off everything and then eventually rebuilding. And you have to understand, it's probably a three-year at minimum building process to go from strip it down to the studs to pretty darn competitive. If you are the Red Sox and you want to do that, like the Astros did, if you want to build that way, if you want to build a sustainable winner, then you need to sell off everything you can. Trevor Story, Kike Hernandez, Rafael Devers, Nick Pavetta, Matt Barnes, anything that's not young and cheap, basically, you need to sell. And you need to understand it will take at least three years before you are even close to back. I do not believe the fan base will go for that. Right? I don't want to go for that. It is painful. I am ruling that out. The other option is the Dave Dombrowski method. Do you want the quick fix? Go out and trade everyone, right? You've, you've got Tristan Casas. You've got Marcelo Meyer. You've got uh, Brian Bayo. You've got these young guys with, who are cheap with team control. Go If you want the quick fix, go trade all of them to go get established stars and or go out and spend every dollar you have in trying to get established stars. That is the Dave Nabrowski method. I don't believe that that's best. I know High and Bloom doesn't think that's best. And I don't think the fan base really wants that either because we're all smart enough now to understand the pitfalls of that. So thus, that is why we are at the crossroads we are in. That is why the Red Sox are at a crossroads, trying to figure out what is the best direction. I do believe it to be this. If Hyam Bloom wants to straddle the line and try his best to navigate it, this is what I believe needs to happen. And again, it's hard. And you're taking a chance. You're taking a chance with anything you do, but you're taking a chance if you do this. But I think this is the best way to operate. I think High and Bloom and the Red Sox need to operate as if the Red Sox are essentially two separate organizations. There is the minor leagues and there is the major league team. When it comes to the minors, I believe that High and Bloom needs to value them like gold. You can't go trading every prospect. You need to cultivate them, and you need to develop them. The Marcelo Mayers, Tristan Casas, Brian Bayo, all your top guys should be large. Blaze Jordan, they should be largely untouchable. You want to trade prospects? You can trade young prospects that we haven't heard about yet. The 17-year-old, the 18-year-old, the high school. You, you want to trade those guys? Okay. You want to trade your fringy prospects? That's fine, too. But you cannot touch your core, your top 8 to 10 prospects. Those guys cannot be moved. If you're going to make deals, it's with younger prospects or fringy prospects, or it's with major leaguers that you can easily replace by signing their replacements. Okay? That, 
If you want to trade Nick Pavetta and Alex Verdugo, guys who are getting down to the end of their contracts, you want to trade them for minor league depth and then go sign their replacements, I can do that too. But you cannot go trading from your top minor league prospects. Okay, You have to treat the minors like gold. As for the majors, if you're not going to trade away prospect capital, you got to be willing to spend real capital. The trade-off for not dealing from your farm is spending a lot of money. And then eventually, hoping that as guys come off the books, you have developed enough minor leaguers that they can come take their place, and then you get younger, and you get cheaper, and you can start the cycle over again. Right? That, that is the goal. The goal is that Chris Sale's coming off the books in two years. Right? If you can develop pitchers at the top of your system that, okay, we're paying Sale a lot now. In two years, we can get rid of him. Right? We can get rid of him. And we can replace him from within. If you offer Nathan Avaldi a two-year deal and he takes it, well, in two years, you don't need him anymore. That money comes off the books, and now we've got a young player to backfill. Maybe Trevor Story opts out of his deal when he first can, and now we're ready to slot Marcelo Mayer in, and we get younger and we get cheaper. And now you're able to do the Astros model, but you have to be willing to spend at the major league level. If you're not going to deal from the minors, which I believe if you're going to straddle the fence, you can't deal from the minors. You have to remain disciplined. But if you're going to do that, you then have to spend at the major league level. The Red Sox are trying to do two things at once. They're trying to develop and protect the minors, guys, while also being frugal at the major league level. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. If you want to be competitive, you cannot do that. And that is what frustrates me right now about the Red Sox. They are caught in the middle. Right? They're caught in the middle. They're not ready to strip it down to the bones. And they're not ready to go to go full Dave Dombrowski. So what are they? Well, I think what they need to do is what I just tried to lay out. We're not dealing from our top young prospects. We are building and developing them. We'll spend at the major league level with the goal of that we can then replace their expensive contracts with our young guys who will eventually come up and be ready. And now we've kind of got the Astros model, and we've got the payroll flexibility eventually. Because if Sale leaves and if Evaldi leaves in two years, you'll have payroll flexibility. It's really hard to do. I just had to say that because I don't think I did a good job on Red Sox coverage over the last couple of days. So I wanted to reset where we were at, and I wanted to give you my thoughts on my frustration. And now we kind of just go on with the offseason. And I don't know when the Red Sox are going to get involved. I don't know when they're going to get involved. They sh- they need to get involved sooner rather than later because there's already a lot of things happening, and they're being left off some bingo cards. A guy who I can continue to uh, talk about my frustration with is our Red Sox insider at Tom Karen, who's calling in now. Looking for the latest information on the Red Sox? Not only is David Ortiz a Hall of Famer, but he is one of the best of the best. How about the Bruins? Are they a Stanley Cup champion? Probably not as presently constructed, but they're a playoff team. And you've come to the right place. 
to talk now with Nesson Insider Tom Karen. Baseball isn't boring because there's still nothing like the communal gathering of fans at a baseball game. On the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, I want to get to Tom Karen, our Red Sox and Bruins insider over at Nesson, who is with us now. TC with us every single Wednesday at this time. How are you? Doing well, Brady. How you doing? I'm doing well as well. The stove is hot right now for everybody but the Boston Red Sox, it seems like. The Blue Jays make a move today, getting some bullpen help. The Yankees did some stuff yesterday, re-signing Anthony Rizzo. The Rays made some minor trades. So the division is churning, and the Red Sox are kind of sizing things up. What exactly are they sizing up? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, you know, the, the first and foremost thing was dealing with a qualifying offer and getting your 40 man set, call five minor leaguers up a rung to keep them protected in the Rule 5 draft. No surprise, obviously, that uh, Xander Bogart didn't accept the qualifying offer. That would have been a cut in pay for yeah. him. Uh, but on the other side, Evaldi, I think some people thought he might grab that, pitch his way back in. He says no. They can and probably will continue discussing a long-term con- uh, contract. But the frustrating thing is, and you know, if you're a Red Sox fan, you've kind of been watching inactivity from this team now for the better part of the year, right? I mean, the, the movement at the trade deadline didn't uh, do a lot, kind of straddled the fence there, and we know that didn't work. Uh, and now everybody wants quick action. Everybody wants David Bogart walking through that door. Everybody wants an extension for Raphael Devers. We know that High and Bloom doesn't operate like that. It's more methodical. It's more thoughtful. Uh, and we're going to have to have some patience to watch this unfold. You know, what? what's frustrating me, and I, I've been, you and I have talked about this, I've been a High and Bloom defender. I'm generally a proponent of the plan. And I believe at the minor league level, High and Bloom is doing it perfectly right. Build up prospect depth, make some low-level signings, try to develop players, be disciplined in not trading all of them away right away. I think at the minor league level, it's being done right. But at the major league level, the lack of urgency is starting to get to me, and I am getting a little bit frustrated by that, TC. Well, it's easy to, right? I mean, the Yanks move quickly on Rizzo, uh, not just taking care of him, but obviously locking up Aaron Judge's best friend. You can make the analogy that that's Bogarts to Devers, right? Get Bogarts done quickly so that maybe Devers becomes a little bit easier. Uh, the Angels, moving on the Tyler Anderson thing, which is an interesting contract. Uh, but he turns down 19-point-whatever as a qualified offer, and, and basically he's going to play three years to get double that. So that's an interesting deal, but it's a lot of money for a reliever. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a matter of Bloom wants the market to set itself a little bit before making these moves. But, you know, the, the days of the Red Sox having a lot of money and moving quickly are gone. They have a lot of money. They're not moving quickly. It's you know, frustrating. Rob Bradford put out the other day that the Red Sox offered a multi-year deal to Nathan Avaldi, and obviously we don't know the terms yet on that, so the money will dictate largely how we feel about that. And I said this the other day, I have no problem with Nathan Avaldi coming back. I, I don't. I like Nathan Avaldi. I think he's better than he showed last year, obviously, when he was injured. But Nathan Avaldi to me, cannot be this rotation's big move. This is a rotation right now that is older and has a lot of question marks when we talk about Sale and Paxton, and if you bring back Evaldi, it's it's a lot of older pitchers with question marks. I need an A guy, and I don't have a Carlos Rodon, a Justin Verlander, or a Jacob DeGrom yet. 
No, it's exactly right because listen, the Paxton taking the four million dollar uh, player option is is really good news. He was throwing in his nineties before the setback. Uh, it's been a long time, but he's been a good pitcher. Tail's been a very good pitcher, but he's thrown what twenty something innings in the last three years. Uh, and 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 Ivaldi has you know every other year he he deals with a number of injuries. So you can't tell me that that's the trio you're relying on. In fact. They came out last week at the winter meetings, Brian O'Halloran saying they are planning on Garrett Whitlock yes. being a starting pitcher. So that's, that's good to know for Whitlock. That's good to know for fans. But he's coming off a hip injury as well. Uh, Brian Bayo is the only guy in this rotation right now. And Nick Pavetta, who, who didn't have great numbers, but at least took the ball and made 33 starts. Uh, they're the only guys healthy. I'm with you. I want a top two level pitcher at the top of this rotation to make me feel good. If you throw a guy at or near the top of this rotation, the rest of that all falls into place. They'll have the depth. They'll have the redundancy that if one of these guys misses a significant amount of time with injuries, they have someone else who can pitch in there. But I can't lean on those three with uh, untested Whitlock as a starter to take me to where I want to be. Tom Karen, Red Sox insider over at Nesson Bruins as well. We'll get to that momentarily. He's here with us on the Brady Farkas show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Could you see Pavetta being moved? I could. Uh, I could see just about anybody uh, in, in that sort of realm. A Pavetta, an Alex Verdugo, a Mitch Moreland. I think there's a fair number of established major leaguers on this roster who could get moved. I think the guys who won't get moved are, are the Casas and the Bayo, the young guys that they want to build the future around. But I could see, I could see Pavetta getting moved. I told you all along, and I, I'm a guy screaming in the wilderness about this. I'd love to see Pavetta as a closer. Yeah. I, I've always thought he's got the velocity, he's got the emotion, he's got the makeup, he's got the mound presence. I'd love to see him be the guy coming in. I don't know why, but I've always had sort of visions of Jonathan Papelbon when I see Pavetta come in. Uh, he did it a couple of years ago in the playoffs, was phenomenal in extended relief. Uh, you know, remember that high stepping off the mound as the crowd went wild in Fenway against the Rays. Uh, I just, you know, I think he would be uh, a great fit in that bullpen, and you could always have him as a spot, a spot starter if you had all kinds of injuries. So I think he could get moved, could get moved into the bullpen, uh, because if you keep if you add a rotation guy and everybody's healthy, I think Pavetta becomes one of the odd men out. You know, it's interesting too. The bullpen needs probably three to four pretty good arms. Well, the reliever market has moved pretty quickly. Edwin Diaz is already gone. Suarez is already gone. He goes back to uh, back to San Diego. Montero stays in Houston. The Mariners just traded Swanson, who clearly was available. So the relievers, like the Red Sox, need a bunch of them. And a lot of the top-end targets are already gone, TC. Yeah, it's, uh, that's happening fast. And, and, you know, there's been talk that there were a couple of uh, relievers last year they were in on, that they maybe acted a little too slowly and they locked up uh, elsewhere. Uh, they can't let that happen again because more than anything now, uh, again, I think you're one starter away from feeling okay about the rotation. You're three relievers away from putting this bullpen back where it needs to be. Uh, and that's even with uh, the, the potential of a Pavetta with Tanner Houck. It looks like he's going to be earmarked for the bullpen. Uh, Matt Barnes pitching better, as we know. Uh, but Strom is probably gone, uh, wants to maybe be a starter somewhere. 
We'll see if they bring him back. They need to lock up at least two, three guys in short order to let us all calm down about the bullpen. You know, TC, I'm not angry about this, and I don't get angry about guys making personal decisions, but I do notice, like I do note that it's a little bit, I don't know, maybe odd that I read yesterday that Tristan Casas might play for Puerto Rico in the World Baseball Classic. He was just playing for Team USA in the Olympics. Yeah, I know. I know. But you got I guess you go with the option uh where the option exists, right? And you gotta do what you gotta do and and yeah, I'm I'm not crazy about flip flopping countries. It's one thing when you're bouncing around teams. Uh, you know, and, and maybe it's because, you know, he played there and he's uh maybe he wants to get closer to uh, to Alex Cora, a proud uh, Puerto Rican. Uh but yeah, I was a little surprising. Uh, I frankly I'd rather he don't play in the World Baseball Classic at all. I wanted to have a full spring training and get ready for a day job with the Boston Red Sox. Hey, let's talk about the Bruins, who are still dynamite, dynamite excuse me, on the ice and still a little bit questionable off the ice right now. Yesterday, the Bruins said they were going with an independent firm to review their vetting processes. I'm sorry. To me, that just reeks of eyewash to deflect blame. Like, if you bring in a player that has that many character flags and that many question marks, doesn't the vetting process go right up to the top to the ownership group, Cam Neely and Don Sweeney themselves? Shouldn't they be the one taking the blame? What is there to review other than thou how they handled it personally? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I had a hard time sort of understanding what this is really supposed to do. Uh, I, you know, your investigation is in house. Uh, if Cam Neely said, we got to learn what went down, Cam Neely to me should be able to figure that out. Now, maybe this is ownership getting involved, looking at Cam's involvement in it along with everyone else and, and want to get uh, a, a fact, but it, I don't know. Do that internally. I don't. I don't need a public uh, a flogging of whatever happened. Figure out what broke down. Take care of uh, you know admonishing whoever screwed up here, and and move on and be better in the future. But yeah, I, I didn't like any of this. I don't. I, it prolongs it. It uh, it, it does a smack of uh, as you said eyewash of sort of trying to to say well look here's what the investigator said so we're clear. Uh, yeah, I didn't like it. I uh, I want this uh, to be dealt with and moved on from, uh, and this to me just prolongs the whole thing. You know, we talked about this four or five months ago, that when teams move on from coaches, it doesn't necessarily mean that those coaches are bad. It just means that teams kind of go in cycles in terms of what they need. And I find it very interesting that the teams with the most points right now in the league are the Bruins with a new coach who's a little more player-friendly in Jim Montgomery, and the Golden Knights with the coach was a little more tough in Bruce Cassidy. So clearly Bruce Cassidy didn't forget how to coach. It is just kind of confirming what you said months ago, that teams just kind of go in stages in terms of what they need and what they'll respond to. That's the Bill Fitch theory, right? Bill Fitch was uh, the, the taskmaster who helped Larry Bird and the Celtics become a championship contender. Uh, but once uh, that group developed into being one of the best teams in the history of the NBA, they didn't need a taskmaster. They needed Casey Jones, who patted you on the back and, and maybe sang a song at the piano on the road <laughs> trip. Uh, and, and, and he ended up being the perfect guy for the next phase of the Boston Celtics. And I think that's what happens here. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, Jim Montgomery isn't this much better a coach than uh, Bruce Cassidy. Jim Montgomery is this much better a coach for this group of Boston Bruins at this moment in time. 
than Bruce Cassidy. Cassidy is the right guy for Jack Eichel and that group. So, yeah, it's, it's the right fit. I, I think that's management everywhere, right? You've had good bosses. You've had bad bosses. Sometimes they're just bad bosses and you got to move on. Some guys can't coach. Uh, but most guys who've been around the NHL for a while can coach. you just got to find the team that responds to their style and continues to respond over a period of time. Bruins needed a new voice. They found the right guy in Montgomery. Yeah, Bruins certainly playing awesome right now. TC, Tom Karen over at Nesson with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. TC, we'll talk next week. We'll be on Thanksgiving Eve, so we'll, uh, we'll have some fun. We'll talk in seven days. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Brady. No, I'm looking forward to it as well. Tom Karen, our Red Sox and Bruins insider over at Nesson. Lots of good stuff. As always, we're going to get to the Tristan Costas thing uh, in the next hour. Because, again, I, I'm not mad about it. Like, he played for Team USA, and if he wants to maybe play for Puerto Rico in the World Baseball Classic, I'm not mad about it. I don't view him as a traitor. I just find it interesting. So we'll talk and get your views on that coming in the next hour. But he also, TC, agrees with me on, uh, you know, he agrees with me on the Bruins situation with the Mitchell Miller stuff, the investigation, just a bunch of eyewash. He also thinks it's frustrating that the Red Sox are sitting idly by in the free agent market as well. And the reliever market right now is nuts, by the way. The Red Sox might want to get in on this because they need, as TC said, three relievers at least to feel comfortable. Well, Eric Swanson traded today. Uh, Suarez signed again by the Padres. Edwin Diaz back to the Mets. You saw Nick Martinez go back to the Padres. Like, the reliever market is picking up, and the Red Sox are sitting idly by. Look, John Schreiber's great. You can't build a bullpen fully on John Schreiber's, on guys who you just kind of hope will pop. We'll be right back with more here on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV, talking UVM hoop. Want Brady to hear your opinion on the sports stories of the day? Text in at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Reminder, you can download the full show podcast after the show is over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. UVM men's basketball lost yesterday to USC by a score of 59 to 57. Two point loss to the Catamounts against the Pac 12 team. Generally pretty good. UVM, though, one and three on the year now. Not that good. A few things on this one. I will be perfectly transparent with you. I did not watch this game. Uh, and I tell you that for the sake of honesty, right? I don't want to lie to you. Pac 12 network is not on my cable list. It's not free online to watch it. I wasn't paying for it to watch only one game. I listened on the radio to most of the first half. I started to doze off around midnight when we got to halftime. So my immediate knowledge of this game is coming from the box score, highlights, written stories about it, and me listening to the first half. That said, UVM was down 59-54 and then hit a three at the buzzer to make it a little closer. So it wasn't as close maybe as the final score would indicate. Yes, they lost by two, but it wasn't like they were beaten at the buzzer. They had a chance to win it uh, late. They were down five. They hit a three, you know, in, in garbage time to, to bring it closer. So let's start with the frustrations. 
right? I do have positives from this game, I promise you. Let's start with the frustrations. Let's just kind of get that out of the way. As we stand right now, you're one and three. That is a frustration. We are not used to this team being one and three. And while there are no more Power Five schools on the schedule at this immediate juncture, it's going to continue to be tough sledding for this program. It really is possible to go four and ten or five and nine in the non-league. And that is not what we're accustomed to. That's not what they want. That's not what we want as fans. I mean, you're going to see Yale, who's really good, among the best teams in the Ivy League every year. You're going to see Iona, that won the MAC regular season conference last year and has Rick Pitino as its coach. You're going to see Toledo, which is one of the best teams in the MAC conference. You're going to see, you know, good teams down there in the Bahamas tournament. Like, this is not going to be, oh, we went one and three, but we're about to run off 11 straight. Like, that's, that's not what this is. This is a hard schedule. So, going into league play significantly under 500 is very much possible if you don't clean some things up. The other thing that frustrates me is that you got beat twice on this trip when you had leads in the second half. Like significant leads. Any team has to learn how to win. And I know these these environments, they're tough they're tough places to learn how to win on the fly. They're tough places to close games out. You're 3,000 miles away. You're you're on the road. You're against tournament-caliber teams. You're against teams with McDonald's All-Americans in some cases. These are tough places to do on-the-job training as far as learning how to win. But you led by 10 in the second half against Fullerton. You led by 7 in the second half against USC, and you ended up losing both games. That is not desirable. You have to be able to finish. Again, you were up 57-47 against Fullerton, 15 minutes left and lost. And I think they were up 44-37 yesterday. Someone can correct me on that, but I know they were up 7 with, I believe, under 15 to play and ended up losing. You have to be able to finish games. And I understand it's easier to close out Binghamton than it is to close out USC. But if you want to win games at the level that we want this program to win games this year and beyond, you have to be able to close the door. You have to be able to stomp on the neck when you have the foot on it. It's, you just have to have that. Make shots, get stops, hit free throws. You have to be able to do it. The second frustration out of this game. It's really the same script that we've been talking about. The scoring depth for UVM last night. It wasn't there. And if you're going to pull upsets, and if you're going to win games that you're, quote, not supposed to, you need scoring depth. And you need your stars, say it with me, to play like stars. Like, this is, I I feel bad repeating myself, but this is the truth. If you want to pull upsets, if you want to beat teams you're not supposed to beat, you need star efforts, right? USC could get away on a lot of nights with their star not playing like a star, right? They got enough guys there that if their star, who averages 20, got nine, they could probably still get by. If your stars don't show up, you lose the game. And that is exactly what happened 
yesterday, which is exactly what happened against Cal State Fullerton, which is exactly what happened against St. Mary's. On Sunday, Finn Sullivan was on the bench most of the game with foul trouble. He didn't get double figures. He only had two players get double figures. You lose. Last night, Aaron Deloney's on the bench with foul trouble. He scores just three points. And yet again, you get only two players in double figures. Finn Sullivan had 17 and Dylan Penn had 11. No one else was in double figures. And Deloney having three, that's a problem. This guy had 32 in the opener against Brown. I promise you he did. I was there. I saw it. He was 11 of 14 from the floor. He has the ability to light it up. They need him to be a consistent presence. Right? What did I tell you at the beginning of the year? I said, guys that can light it up, they can tend to go cold, or maybe they can't get their shot off. I said that was a worry from the start, and guess what? We've ridden the roller coaster through four games. And I trust that come league time, Aaron Deloney's going to be consistent. This is not a huge knock on him. But if you're going to win games like this, your stars have to be stars. And we went from 32 points to, I think, 7 to 15 to 3 for Deloney. That's not the wave that I want to ride. That's not the wave that this program wants to be on. Another frustration out of last night. Foul trouble remains an issue for this group. Again, if you're going to win games like this, and if your stars are going to play like stars, guess what? You need your stars available to you. And for another night, UVM didn't have that. Aaron Deloney, why did he only get three points? He only played 15 minutes. Why did he only play 15 minutes? He had three fouls in the first half. You you can't be that consistent score when you're not on the floor. That's an issue. Robin Duncan only played 24 minutes last night. That's a starter playing. Starters want what? What are they going to play usually? 30 to 32 to 33 minutes. Robin Duncan plays 24. So you have a top two scorer on your team in Deloney not available to you enough, and you have a top two rebounder and defender to you in Duncan. Not available to you enough. In the same way, you didn't have Sullivan available to you on Sunday. You need your players available. It's total coach speak, but it's true. Best ability is availability. You're not on the floor because you're in foul trouble. Then what good are you? And that's a problem, right? It has been a problem for the last couple of games. Another issue to take note of, Nick Fiorillo only had two rebounds. We talk about this team getting out-rebounded. We talk about this team having guards lead the team in rebounding. Nick Fiorillo is your starting center. I said one of my biggest keys to this season was how well did he adapt to playing down low. And, again, I'm not here to knock him. He had nine points yesterday. Like He showed up offensively. But he took five threes and only had two rebounds. He's playing exactly like me. I promise you, that is how I play. I like to stand on the perimeter, I like to shoot the ball, and I don't like to go muck it up down low. They're going to need more than me from Nick Fiorillo. Two rebounds. Coach Brendan told me a long time ago, hey, rebounds, I don't care who gets them, just get them. And there is a real validity to that. But if my 6'8 center is only going to get two boards, and my starting point guard and Robin Duncan is going to be my leader at 7, 
I have a bit of an issue with that if it's happening consistently. UVM got out-rebounded again. It wasn't as bad as it's been, but they got out-rebounded by eight. In a game you lose by two, getting out-rebounded by eight can be a big deal. I don't know that it was the big deal yesterday, but it can be. Other things, UVM was 8 of 27 from 3. They didn't shoot that well from beyond the arc. I think they were 1 of 9, which is 11% in the first half. You're going to pull an upset. You're going to have to shoot better. That, I do believe, will come. I'm not quite as worried about that. It's a frustration from last night, but I don't think it's an overwhelming problem. And finally, at 1 in 3 and all of these losses, it feels like the non-conference schedule won't carry a lot of weight for UVM. I've told you I want good wins in the non-conference, and a great non-conference resume can help you come tournament time, and you've already pretty much forfeited that chance, right? Again, if you win every game for the rest of the year, for the rest of the non-conference, then sure, maybe you can, you know, have the, the, the you know, impress the tournament committee, but it doesn't feel like that's likely. You haven't beaten any of the big dogs you should have beaten. You're not likely to beat Miami around Christmas time. If you can't win any of those games, and you're probably going to drop another few along the way here, your your non-conference resume doesn't become all that impressive, and you're kind of just destined for a 15 seed if you get to the tournament. And that's not what anybody wants. So we'll see what happens. I hope they do win every non-conference game for the rest of the year, and I hope they prove me wrong. And I hope they go 16-0 and and then sweep through the through the America East and they end up with a 12 seed. But right now, we're not pointing to that. It is the Brady Farkas Show in WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Texter says, is the men's basketball program overachieving? I guess you mean historically, considering right now they're underachieving at 1-3. and three. Um, Overachieving? That's an interesting question. I think that we as fans have become spoiled, and I'm guilty of it, right? Like I am now basically looking at the regular season as a lock that they're going to do well, right? That's, that's not a given, but I treat it as a given, and I think a lot of fans treat it as a given. I now treat it like every year they're going to be in at least in the America East Conference title game. So I believe that we as fans are now spoiled by their success. As for overachieving, yeah, they're overachieving considering what they have. They do not have, at least at my last check, I don't have it officially in front of me, but at least at my last check, they don't have the funding that some other programs in their conference have. They also don't have the best arena in the conference. They're also far away. They're also hard to get to. So what UVM has built has become, I would say, an overachievement. Like, they're not supposed to be as good as they are. You look at Maine. Maine is dreadful. Now, Maine is farther north, and Maine is harder to get to also. Like, it has even more challenges than Burlington does, but Maine is awful. That's kind of what it's, quote, supposed to look like. UVM, I would say, has overachieved compared to what they have and what they are given. But we as fans, I would say, are spoiled by what they have become. Uh, There were some good things in this game. 
right? I spent a couple minutes on the frustrations, and they're real. There were some good things in this game that I want to get to as well. Number one, that was a tournament-type game, right? That game yesterday was good for your experience. Whether I'm talking about the experience of your next tough non-league game on Friday against Iona, whether we're talking about a conference tournament game, or whether we're talking about an NCAA tournament game, that was a tournament-type game. It was low-scoring. It was hard to score. It was a defensive-minded matchup. It was tough. That game yesterday will benefit UVM down the road. 19 ties, or 19 lead changes, 12 ties. That is how tournament games are played. You don't see a lot of NCAA tournament games where the little guy's winning 98 to 96. If the little guy's gonna win, 59-57 is the way it goes a lot of times. 64-61. That's how the game gets played. It gets, it gets played tight and physically. Last night will provide UVM with good experience. Number two, and I noticed this, and this was said on the radio broadcast when I was listening. Last night, and Coach Becker said it after the game too, last night felt like more of UVM basketball. Like it felt like Catamount Hoops. UVM prides itself on defense. It prides itself for on making things difficult for opponents, and it did that much more so last night. I mean, holding a Pac-12 team, holding a Power 5 conference team to 59 points, that is an accomplishment at home, in their building. Life was hard last night for USC. They had as many turnovers as they did assists. They only had four offensive rebounds, so UVM was much better on the defensive glass overall. They shot just 18% from three, 35% from the floor. Like, UVM lost that game because of their own offensive struggles and their own foul trouble. They did not get run out of the gym yesterday. And a hallmark of UVM teams has always been that they're not going to get run out of the gym. There's a reason why that St. Mary's loss last week was their worst loss since 2018. They just don't get blown out. They play tough, they play physical, and when you do that, you are in a lot of games. Last night, they were in that game, and that felt much, much better. That felt more like Catamount Hoops. And then finally, I mentioned Nick Fiorillo. While the two rebounds thing, that bums me out, he did have nine points. They are going to need that. I asked for him to average eight. He hasn't been there yet this year. He had nine yesterday. He's a better shooter than one of five from three. Hopefully he... uh Hopefully he finds his stroke as we move forward, but Finn Sullivan got 17. That's good. Robin Duncan, the seven rebounds. UVM had had double the amount of turnovers with assists. They had 15 assists and seven turnovers. That's good offense. Now, they didn't hit a lot of shots, but when they did hit shots, they were getting them off the assists, and I, and I give a lot of credit to that. Yesterday felt more like Catamount Hoops, and hopefully Friday at Mohegan Sun, they're playing Iona a little more like Catamount Hoops as well. That will be a good matchup that I'm looking forward to. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The best of Freddie Coleman is going to be with us here uh, in about 15 minutes. I spoke to Freddie earlier today. I do want to get one more just kind of UVM generic note out there. And I'm a sucker for things like this. 
I was on Twitter a little while ago in the last commercial break, and I saw the UVM men's hockey team, right? One of their players and Coach Woodcroft. They were at their weekly press conference talking about their team, and they were wearing UVM men's soccer jerseys. UVM men's soccer plays in the NCAA tournament tomorrow. And the Catamount hockey team, arguably the most important team on campus, are the definitely the most well-funded team on campus, was supporting the UVM men's soccer team. I'm a sucker for this, but I'd love to see that. And I, it, it's one of the reasons why I love Coach Woodcroft and why I like his program and why I like Catamount Athletics. Usually, in athletic departments, there's a lot of rivalry and there's a lot of jealousy, right? My program doesn't get the funding that your program does. My program should get the eyeballs that your program does. My fan, The fans don't come to my game as much. We're not as good as you, so now I'm rooting for you to lose. That doesn't seem to happen in Catamount country. It sounds corny. It sounds cliche. But I've been talking to Catamount coaches and athletes for the last six years, and it sounds true that there is not an athletic department rivalry. I, I played college baseball at a Division three school. Men's hockey was by far, by far, the most attended sport, the most supported sport. The games were on television in town. They had won the national championship a year or two before I got there. I resented the men's hockey team. I was their broadcaster, and I wanted them to lose a lot of games because I was jealous. Okay, The baseball team didn't get the fans that they got. The baseball team didn't get the coverage that they got. The baseball team didn't get the money that they got. And the baseball team didn't have the success that they had and all the things that come with that success. People knew who they were. People didn't know who I was. Now, 15 years removed from college, 14 since I, or 13 since I, no, Jesus, 10 since I graduated. I'm losing track of years here. 10 years since I graduated, I'm not afraid to admit that, but I am embarrassed to admit that. That doesn't seem to be the case at UVM. And for what it's worth, it doesn't seem to be the case at Norwich either. These teams genuinely seem to like each other. They genuinely seem to support each other. And I don't see a lot of rivalry. I mean, I I was looking at it today. Todd Woodcroft makes over $200,000 a year. I promise you he's the highest paid employee in the athletic department. No. I can't promise that. I don't know what Coach Becker makes off the top of my head. But I think Todd Woodcroft makes significantly more. And it would be easy to resent his program if you were somebody else, and it would be easy for his program to look down upon everybody else. And that's not happening. And I think that that is very, very, very cool. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. Who's saying what? This Patriots game against the Jets on Sunday is far bigger than I thought it was. I'll tell you why. That's next in WDEV. The Brady Parker Show now has an interactive text line, so reach out now at 802-585-3026. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Well, they have an expensive but totally unimpressive receiving core, and they have at absolute best, at most charitable, the ninth best quarterback in their own conference. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race. And I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Parker Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. 
Who's saying what? Brought to you by Vermont Laser Wash. That's Central Vermont's home of unlimited car washes. If you want an unlimited car wash, you know what it is. $20 a month. If you want just one free car wash, just text the word Vermont to the number 30 and then 400. Our show also is brought to you in part by Pro Driver Training. That's Pro Driver Training, Vermont's premier truck driver training school. As for who's saying what, Greg Bedard of the Boston Sports Journal, usually a Patriots hater. And he said something yesterday that I thought, when I heard it, I just rolled my eyes at it. It turns out he's not really that wrong. The Patriots season really comes down to this Sunday Thank you. against the Jets. I mean, you know, if the Jets are coming off a bye week, so that's enough time to fit Zach Wilson for a straitjacket and to drill it into his head, you are not going to let the Patriots beat us this week. Because if the Jets play defense like they are, and they just beat the Bills, uh, and Zach Wilson doesn't turn the ball over and they run the ball, the Jets should win the game. So Greg Bedard says the Patriots' season really comes down to this Sunday against the Jets. And the Pats are 5-4, and four, and the Jets are 6-3. and three. The Pats are in last right now. The Jets are in second by virtue of their tiebreaker with the Bills. And i got to say, I rolled my eyes out when I heard it last night. I thought, oh, come on, man. It's not a must win. The season's not over. They've already beaten the Jets, and you're not eliminated officially if you lose this game. But you know what? Greg Bedard is pretty darn on here. This game means far more than I thought it did initially. Right now, the New England Patriots have a 39% chance at making the playoffs. A 39% chance. If they win this game on Sunday against the Jets... They'll have the double tiebreaker on them. And they'll, their playoff odds will go up to 53%. If the Patriots lose this game, their playoff odds go all the way down to 17%. We're talking about a 36% variation there. And I do not want to be on the wrong side of a 36% variation. This really feels like it has a chance to catapult the Patriots' season forward or possibly be the anvil that goes on top of it. I mean, you look at the last eight games of this Patriots schedule. You look at the remaining eight. They are thought to be pretty darn difficult for New England. All right? You got, look, Vegas and Arizona, they appear like they might be wins. But Buffalo twice, Miami again, Cincinnati. You get Minnesota on a short week at Thanksgiving night with all the travel. You get these Jets. It's difficult sledding. Tom Kern of NBC Sports Boston laid it out. But the road from here is way harder. Upcoming opponents have gone 44-30. and 30. That's a 595 winning percentage. Five of the Patriots' final seven are against current playoff qualifiers. Half of the eight games are at night. Three of the night games are on the road. And with this mishmash of teams in the playoff race in both conferences, seeding is going to matter all the way until the end. So it is a tough road for the Patriots. This game is becoming much more of a must-win than I thought it was. Let, let, let's examine where we're at right now. Okay, The Patriots are 5-4. and four. Last year they made the playoffs, and they went 10-7. and seven. So 10 wins does not guarantee you in the playoffs, but let's assume that they need to get to 10 wins again. That would mean in order to get to 10 and 7 this year, they got to go 5 and 3 to close it out. 5 and 3 against that schedule. All right? Again, I can probably make the case that Vegas and the Cardinals look like wins. That's two 
win. That's that's two wins that I'm calling layups here in this one. But again, to get to ten wins, you need to find yourself three more games. If I beat the Jets, I only got to find myself two. If I don't beat the Jets, now I got to find myself three of my remaining seven, and that's hard to do with Buffalo twice and Miami once and and Cincinnati. Now some of those games are at home, but I'd much rather be chasing two wins than chasing three. This game takes on increased meaning for the Patriots, and we're going to have it for you on Sunday right here on DEV with our coverage beginning at 10 a.m. and the kickoff is at one. But yeah, I need to go five and three at the end down the road in this season. Vegas and the Cardinals look like two wins. Finding another three is hard. I gotta beat the Jets, so I'm only chasing two the rest of the way, right? I gotta get, I gotta get myself to where I'm hopefully only chasing two. The thing the Patriots do have in their favor, by the way, I will note this. Earlier in the year, I talked about how the Patriots aura was gone, the Patriots mystique was gone, the Patriots edge was gone. You know, that, that died with Tom Brady. Well, it didn't die to the New York Jets. The Patriots still have a very big mental advantage on the New York Jets. And Bob Glober, I believe the New York Daily News, confirmed that. Yeah, they actually are. I'm sure they are. They they would never admit that. They hate the Patriots, but they're absolutely, you know, Patriots are in their heads. Because as much as they try to just get ready for this matchup, the results always go against them. So that... You know, that is a team that is inside the Jets' head. There's, there's no question about it. Again, the aura of the Pats around the league is done. Belichick has a bit of an aura. The aura of the Pats around the league, that's over with. But their aura over the Jets, that's still a thing. And if you're talking about this game being a kind of season-teetering win for them, potentially, you're going to find out the way to use that to your advantage bait Zach Wilson into more bad decisions, more frustration throws, get him out of his element. Right, he looked better last week against Buffalo, right? Or, you know, they were on the bye this week, but last week that they played against Buffalo. You want to bait him into looking like he did against you at uh, at your place earlier in the year. Ralph says, this is going to be a great game and should be close. Hidden yardage and special teams could be the difference. That That is something you could say about a lot of games in the NFL. I'll be honest, I... I feel like the Patriots are going to blow them out. But that is just a product of me knowing that the Patriots have beaten the Jets, I believe, 13 consecutive times. This game is at home. I don't see Zach Wilson as a guy who can go into Foxborough and beat Belichick and win and, and win a game. If the Jets win, I feel like they got to win at 13-10. And I feel like the Patriots can find just enough scoring to be able to win a game. Like I, I'm going wholly on arrogance and wholly on reputation here that I think the Patriots are going to smoke the Jets. But the Jets did beat Buffalo. And the Jets have beaten Green Bay in Green Bay. And that counts for something. They are better than I give them credit for. I, am, I, I have no doubt about that. But I do believe that the Pats this week, I believe the Pats are going to win. And I believe they can beat Arizona and, and Vegas. The question is, can they find the other two wins necessary to get into the playoffs? And, and this is going to be tough because after this Jets game, they're going to get 8-1 and one Minnesota on the road on Thanksgiving night. 
And I don't know what it's like to play in the NFL, but I got to imagine that that is weird. You get a short week, a short week Thursday. You play on a holiday. You have to try to make the holiday week as normal as possible. You have to go on the road. You have to go, you know, a decent amount of travel. This isn't like going to play the Giants or going to play Philly or Washington or someone in your division. This is going to Minnesota with a time change in the middle of the week on a holiday, playing at night, and you're playing against a team that's 8-1, and one, that has arguably the best wide receiver in football, that has a good running attack. I mean, that that is going to be tough. You have two games in five days. This one's got to be a win because that one looks hard to get. I do not think it's impossible for the Patriots to beat Minnesota, but that one looks hard to get. So you got to get this one. All right, I want to mention something that's just interesting here. And I talked a little bit about this with Tom Karen, right? This year, we've got the World Baseball Classic coming up, and... Tristan Casas, the Red Sox first baseman, is possibly going to play for Puerto Rico in the World Baseball Classic. Not guaranteed. He's on their preliminary list of maybes. And it's very interesting because Tristan Casas played for Team USA in the 2020 Summer Olympics. So, and I, so I just, I find that interesting. He played for Team USA in the Olympics. And now he is under consideration for Puerto Rico in the World Baseball Classic. How do you feel about that? 802-585-3026. I'll just tell you, I find it interesting. I'm not mad at Tristan Casas. I don't think he's Benedict Arnold. I don't think that he's a traitor. I just think it's interesting, and I just think it's noteworthy. Because let's understand something. Athletes compete for different nations all the time. Sometimes they even get brand-new citizenships just to be able to do this. This isn't new. I forget her name, but the woman who won Wimbledon this year, born in Russia, I believe lives in Russia, competes for Kazakhstan. Why? Because they will give her funding and training that Russia won't. She does everything Russian, but she competes under the Kazakh flag just because they help her out more financially. So, And secondly, the, the rules of the World Baseball Classic, they're pretty lax. There's like a lot of different ways you could be eligible to play for a nation in the World Baseball Classic. So, I mean, you can be born there. You can have a parent from there. You can have a parent that had citizenship there. There's a lot of different ways to help World Baseball Classic teams fill out rosters here. So it's very lax eligibility. So just because he played for Team USA, if he meets another qualification, he can play for Puerto Rico. What I find interesting more than anything is this. I wouldn't think that Team Puerto Rico needs Tristan Casas. Like, I think of Puerto Rico as a very established baseball nation, full of major leaguers. I would think that they wouldn't need a guy who has played, you know, 25 games in the major. I wouldn't think that they would need him, but evidently they might. So the opportunity does appear to be greater for Tristan Casas to play for Puerto Rico than it would for the U.S. He wouldn't make the U.S., Right, Paul Goldschmidt's on Team USA, and I could probably run down and think of ten other first basemen that are that could play for Team USA. Puerto Rico, contrary to what I believe, doesn't really have that. Like Javi Baez, Carlos Correa, and Francisco Lindor, phenomenal middle infield choices. They don't really have anybody that could play first base. 
So Tristan Casas just might have the opportunity to play for Puerto Rico when he wouldn't for the U.S. So that's interesting. And then two, I'll be honest with you, I have not found, even with the lax eligibility requirements, I haven't found the connection yet between Casas and Puerto Rico. Casas was born in the USA, so it's not that. Casas' father is, is, is American, so it's not like a thing where his dad was born in Puerto Rico. His dad's side of the family is from Cuba, so it's not like they're Puerto Rican. The only thing I don't know is what nationality Casas' mother is. And Tristan Casas' mother died in 2007. So because she's been gone for 15 years, there's not a lot written about her. If she was from Puerto Rico, if she had citizenship in Puerto Rico, that would make him eligible to play there. I have not found it yet. And and I don't want to speculate, but this feels like if his mother does have a Puerto Rican connection, that maybe it's a way to honor her as well. And I will never knock somebody for trying to honor a loved one. Right? Like, Ian Kinsler used to represent Team USA. He played for Israel at the Olympics. He's Jewish. He wanted to honor his Jewish heritage. He played for Israel. And that was perfectly allowed. And nobody gave him any grief. So I'm not going to give Casas any grief for representing the U.S. in this tournament and Puerto Rico in that tournament. At the end of the day, the World Baseball Classic is an exhibition. It is not the Olympics. It is not the World Cup. I love it, but it, and it means a lot to the players. It doesn't mean as much to the international community as the Olympics do. And that's just a fact. Uh, A-Rod played for Team USA in the World Baseball Classic and played for the Dominican Republic a couple of years later. Manny Machado played for Team USA on all the junior circuits and played for the Dominican in the World Baseball Classic. So th- this kind of stuff happens all the time. This, uh, this kind of stuff happens all the time. I don't begrudge Casas. I don't look at him differently. I don't, I don't look at him as a traitor. I just find it interesting and noteworthy. Um, Texter says, Brady, it's part of the U.S., so not exactly a different nation. Big misnomer to call it betrayal. I said I don't consider it betrayal. I don't know. That is a good point, though. Considering that Puerto Rico is a commonwealth, I don't exactly know how the eligibility works, but I got to think there's some eligibility. I don't just believe that every U.S.-born player can go play for Puerto Rico. I, like, I don't, I don't believe that. So yeah, and just like I don't believe that every Puerto Rican-born player can play for the U.S., there is, there is a a different policy, I believe. So I don't consider it betrayal at all to play for a different nation. They are treated as different nations. That's why they're that's why they have two separate nations competing them. If the international community saw them as the same, Puerto Rican players would be competing freely for the U.S. and U.S. players would be competing competing freely for Puerto Rico. They are seen as two different places, despite the brotherhood of the Commonwealth. Um, Steve says, I hope you're right about the Jet game. I am going and I am scared. I just can't see the Jets beating the Patriots. I just can't. Doesn't mean they won't, but they've lost to them 13 consecutive times. Sam Darnold has seen ghosts, and Zach Wilson has thrown three interceptions, and the Jets just always find a way to Jets. I, I again, I'm, I'm, I'm basing this on arrogance. I am basing this on history, and I know I shouldn't do that. The Jets have a great defense. The Jets have a newfound swagger. The Jets have some more offensive pieces. But I just don't see them beating the Patriots. Not not this time under these circumstances. 
the Patriots might not be able to beat Miami. They might not be able to beat Buffalo. They might not be able to beat the Bengals. They might not get to the playoffs. I've been pretty bullish on them knocking into the playoffs all through the offseason. I do think they beat the Jets, though. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The best of Freddie Coleman. Three and a half minutes of Freddie talking a little UVM hoops and a little Pats Jets as well. That's next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Jazz with George Thomas, coming up about 10 minutes from now. Earlier today, I spoke with Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio, and Freddie Coleman is the host of Freddie and Fitzsimmons on ESPN Radio, and he's with me every Wednesday. I spoke to him earlier today. It's a 10-minute interview. We had some fun talking about the Men's League Basketball title game. We talked a lot about UVM. We talked a lot about the Patriots. I encourage you to go find the full interview online on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel. I bring you the best four minutes of Freddie now. I started out talking with him about UVM hoops, talked about how UVM lost yesterday by two to USC after getting taken to, after going to double overtime with Cal State Fullerton, coming up just short in the last two games out west. Which means you're not that far away if you're Coach Beck in Vermont because you're losing those kind of games on the road and no one wants to start their season 0-3. But two friends of mine, Jessica Minetti, the head women's coach at Sacred Heart, and Anthony Latina, the head men's basketball coach at Sacred Heart, they always talk about no matter what, especially the young basketball team, you're going to have teachable moments. And Coach Minetti went through the same thing last week, being one and two, and you lose to LaSalle on a Thursday, then you lose on a Sunday game when you lose to Monmouth. And she says with a young basketball team, it's a lot easier to teach them things from losses than from wins because that gets their attention. So you get the sense that Becker, who's been a really good coach, and he's going to continue to be a good coach, is going to use those moments and say, guys, we're not that far away from being the kind of team I believe we're going to be. This is only going to help us the rest of our non-conference schedule. And also we get into America East play, which is going to be a little bit better than anybody could have anticipated. And what's crazy is, like, it's it's not going to get that much easier for UVM no. because when we go, you know, look, they're coming back East now Friday. They're taking on Iona at Mohegan mm-hmm. Sun. Then they're at mm-hmm. Yale the following Tuesday, and then mm-hmm. then they go to the Bahamas, and then they get a couple of what you would think are gimme layups back, you know, back after the holiday. But then, you know, they're out to Miami after Christmas. Like we're not used to this, but they could very easily be five and nine by the time the lo- the, the the non-conference is done. And if you are five and nine, then you make sure that all the things you've done, whether you had the wins or losses, Brady are going to set you up for America East play because anybody you play in that league is not going to be anywhere near as talented as a Miami team that got to the Elite Eight last year, a USC team that many people believe could win the Pac-12 and compete with Arizona, a Cal State Fullerton that's going to be a force out there in the Big West. So all those games, no matter the result, it's all about setting up what can you do from January through February and March to get that automatic bid to the America East. And believe me, if no one knows that better than John Becker, and I guarantee you that that's the message he's letting his team know that this is setting us up to say, okay, this is what we're going to, have to deal with in America East, and we're going to be fully ready for it no matter what we've done in the pre-non-conference schedule. Freddie Coleman, ESPN Radio. I, I, I only intended to ask Freddie one question about UVM, but he's always so on top yeah. of things, I just had to keep going with it. Let's get to the Patriots who are getting ready for the Jets in Foxborough coming up on Sunday. The Pats are 5-4. and four, The Jets are 6-3. and three. The Pats right now, I think, have the mental advantage on the Jets based on beating them mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. How do you feel about this matchup from your Jets perspective? 
Well, I'll use the term sick and tired, and when is that going to happen that you're sick and tired? When it comes to the Jets, who have not beaten the Patriots in the last 13 meetings, and if you're the Patriots where you get tired of people asking you questions about when is this offense going to wake up because you know the defense is really, really good. It's one of the best defenses in the National Football League. So that's how I describe this game. If you're a Jets team, you've had the off week to have the Patriots front and center when it comes to your mental preparation, when it comes to your physical preparation. And all this depends on Zach Wilson. What has he done in those two weeks to make sure he doesn't have the three-interception debacle that he had the first time these two teams played this year? And when it comes to the Patriots, you know the defense will carry the day. You know the running game is going to be there. What have you been able to do to make sure Mac Jones and offense can get those kind of chunk plays? Because against a Jets defense that may have the best front four in the National Football League, I think the only front four better than them are the guys in San Francisco at their 49ers front four. But they can get home with four guys. And if they're able to do that, then they can really have man-to-man principles in zone coverages where they're going to really squeeze your short passes and your intermediate passes. I want to see the Pages can do that when that happens, not if, but when that happens. What can you do to generate a chunk play and try to loosen that defense of a Jets defense that's playing pretty well, especially on the defensive line? That was the best of Freddie Coleman. Earlier today, again, I spoke to Freddie. I speak to him every Wednesday, right? TC I speak to on Wednesdays. Freddie I speak to on Wednesdays. Some days TC's live, some days Freddie's live. We've kind of played musical chairs with it, but love both their insight. The full interview is available on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel. So uh, Spencer asked an interesting question about Anthony Lamb playing with the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, he's carved out a nice role for himself, the UVM product. He had five the other day. He didn't see uh, the Warriors are going to play tonight against Phoenix. That, that game, I believe, is nationally televised. Maybe I'll get a better look at Anthony Lamb, but certainly has matriculated well into the NBA this year after a couple of stints with the Houston Rockets. So I uh, appreciate the message, Spencer. Uh, again, full show podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. We'll have the podcast up for you in about 15 minutes. We've fixed our glitch, and now we're back to getting them out as quick as possible. I'll see you tomorrow. Buster only of ESPN will stop by. A little more hot stove. Start to get a little more ready for the Patriots. It's coming up tomorrow on WDEV AM and FM.